Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The Military Maxims of Napoleon. Wargaming on the Earverm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today we finish up our installment speaking about the maxims of Napoleon and start our transition back over to Clausewitz, who uh, we started with in this particular time period. But before we do that, um, I wanted to take some time to address a very sober topic, which is the state of conflict currently in the world today. Uh, if you are paying attention to the news at all, and you're, of course, listening uh, right now as things are going on, you will know that there is a new conflict that has opened up in Israel, uh, and between Israel and, and uh, uh, Hamas. And it calls to mind that we do not live in a world of peace, and that the principles that we have seen play out in these books that we've been studying are still very much uh, relevant and we can see them in the world around us. But I wanted to make a clear distinction here that this show, uh, myself and, and this show, we, we represent war gaming. We represent the building of communities, the building of uh, enjoyment, and the sharing of activities that, that can really deepen our experiences with one another. Games, you understand. But real war... Real war has real consequences, and as Clausewitz and Napoleon have said, it is done for political reasons. And whatever those reasons may be, the only people who I, and the show, personally will throw our sympathy in with are those innocent people who are caught in the middle. Those innocent people who were doing nothing other than trying to raise their families or find some element of mild prosperity for themselves whose lives have been upended, and ruined, and in cases destroyed. There are no other victors uh, in, in all of this. This is all very ugly. War is, of course, ugly. And so we, we stand with those who have been caught within the terrible conflicts of this world, not just the, the, the most recent between uh, you know, the Israeli troops, you know, Israeli government and, and Hamas, but also the Ukraine who we've continued to keep our eyes on and they've stayed in our thoughts. The recent but unstable treaty in, in Yemen, where so many lives have been lost. Uh, the DRC, where you've got uh, M23, who is starting to ramp up their activities again in the area, and it, it, it's starting to look bleak, bleak for Central Africa once again. And then Haiti, which, although no formal war has been declared, the political instability and the gang warfare in the area have created a lot of, of harm to the people in those places. So for anybody who might be listening, 
in those areas or have loved ones who are afflicted by these, these conflicts, um, please know that our sympathies are with you. Just because we study war here does not mean that we endorse it. All right, I wanted to get that out of the way because there's a lot going on and uh, some of the stuff that we've discussed, particularly in uh, not just this book we're in right now, but thinking back to the book by Abu Bakr Naji, um, we want to make sure that, yeah, <laughs> that we are not showing any sort of endorsement for these tactics, but they just studying them as we would anything else academic. But the, the, the season is fully turned here. We're starting to move inside. I don't know about any of y'all, but uh, our season of green has come to an end. Our stunning fall colors that we have had here in uh, Stygia for a little while have turned to bare branches and piles of, of just leaves blowing around in the wind. Winter, uh, it seems, it will soon be upon us, which, would have bring, which always brings its own challenges to any sort of warfare in any place. Uh, because even around the equatorial zones, there are changes, you know, shifts that happen in, in terms of the winter. And it may just be a, a time of wet, like a, a, a wet uh, period, a wet zone that occurs. Or it might be a dry spell or you know, temperature changes like we have here. But any of that brings a difference in the way that we're going to approach our warfare. And so this is going to be different in all of our regions. You know, here in Montana... I think we've talked about this before, but the changing of the season brings on a lot of danger to it because the cold here is a killer. So as, as our days get shorter and shorter and the nights get longer and this cold begins to creep in, the, there is a stark reminder that, that, that nature here is, is very much in control and that anybody in the field has to be respectful of that. And that's true anywhere. Wherever we're in, in the field, nature is obviously in control. And Napoleon may talk about you know, that not, the ground not being the only thing that matters, that one needs to take other things into account. And I think weather and climate is one of those things, one of those all-important details that seems to be forgotten sometimes and is often very lethal to forget. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's, I, I think that's uh, good enough for this particular intro. And uh, let's get on to our last installment of Napoleon's Maxims. saying it. I know that it's been a long time coming, but I can say with certainty that today we will be finishing up our study of Napoleon and then returning to Clausewitz. The funny thing about Clausewitz, as I have been reflecting on it, and Clausewitz wrote a far, far shorter book called His Principles of Warfare. And that one we absolutely could have studied because it is more of just like a baseline practical model for warfare, kind of a distilled version of Clausewitz's theory, whereas on war is a far longer, far wider reaching, almost the theoretical work and, and kind of philosophical work in a lot of ways, as, you, as you've noticed as well. But, you know, of the two, even though we would absolutely have been finished a long time ago with Clausewitz's principles, I think On War is giving us a glimpse into things that we wouldn't normally get in a shortened version. Like, absolutely giving us that. And although some of that stuff doesn't apply directly to wargaming, I'm still talk enjoying talking about it 
in terms of just overall military science. And I, I hope that y'all are plan uh, enjoying it as well. I know, again, that some of that stuff might not be directly applicable to what we do, but I still think it's fascinating. You know, I still think it's absolutely, um, you know, just kind of a wonderful thought experiment to uh, consider these various aspects. Because, again, we what we do is free from any of those extraneous issues, at least in the same way, like to the, to the degree that of course we talk about the logistics and the food and the camp life. Like these guys were in danger of getting scurvy and cholera in their camp life. We are not. And if we are, we are doing it horrifically wrong, uh, because it's so much easier to, to not get those things in this day and age, especially when you're not actually doing real warfare. But it still presents a really cool snapshot into what that world looked like and the requirements of the soldiers and the generals and the, you know, the logistics and the administration and everything for the conduct, conduct of war at these times. So even though I chose the much longer uh, text to go through, I don't necessarily regret it. And I hope you all don't either, despite the fact that it means that we have been painfully paused <laughs> on this particular subject for a while. But we're going to be moving on. We're going to be going back to Clausewitz. So instead of these freewheeling maxims of Napoleon, we're going to be getting back into that nice, nitty-gritty, detailed work that Clausewitz is so well known for. So look forward to that. I know I do. But let's jump right into these, shall we? Going back to right where we were, which is a good place to start. 111. The geographical conditions of a country, life in plains or mountains, education or discipline, have more influence than climate on the character of their troops. I mean, this is, this is true in a large way. Like, climate, of course, does matter in terms of the ability to endure it. You know, people who are from Montana have a far better time, far easier time, enduring the cold, as a general rule, than people who are not from Montana and have not had to endure it their entire lives. We're not conditioned by it growing up. And so for the uh, uh, U.S. Army that would have been operating in this area against some of the, the native tribes, Salish Kootenai and, what, and whatnot, uh, they would have been at a massive disadvantage at this time of year because uh, the sheer fact that they were not accustomed to the to weather, not, and not just living in it, not just the, the physical resistance to it, but the the things that one should do to avoid the danger of it. You know, folks who have lived here, you know, we know. It's like, okay, you go out in layers. You just do because the the temperature difference here, because we're in kind of an alpine desert a lot of the time, um, the temperature difference can be extreme. And what is warm and comfortable in the morning could be overpoweringly warm in the afternoon. And sweating is dangerous. That's That can be more dangerous than being a little too cold. So we know as people who have lived here and grew up here and, and acclimated to it, the, the ins and outs and the do's and don'ts of trying to live here. But that is not arcane knowledge. That is not secret. That is only something that is known to people from here. An enterprising general, an enterprising commander will have done their research and say, okay, this is what we're going to need. Don't be Napoleon. Don't be Hitler marching into Russia thinking you're all that in a bag of potato chips without the proper preparation. The German troops did not have the proper heat gear or cold weather gear. They simply did not. It's one of the greatest hindrances to the German military and their weapons and their 
<laughs> and their vehicles were not conditioned for cold warfare. And that was not so much the Russians like uh, doing something right, but more the Germans doing something wrong. And so we want to make sure that we are not doing the wrong thing, not hobbling us before we even get there. But in terms of the troops themselves, of course, the geography, it will make a, a bigger difference because it is the terrain that they're used to operating in. And I think I talked about this in the um, section that we did on asymmetric warfare when we were in Abu Bakr Naji. And I had made a fairly controversial statement talking about how just baseline the troops in Afghanistan of, of, of the, the native populace who are Taliban or Afghani or, or whatever, they are going to have a far better time, a far easier time than an American. Even though an American soldier is quote-unquote worth far more in terms of how much has been put into their training, not like their intrinsic value, but just in terms of how expensive the training was, how expensive the gear was, how expensive it is to feed, how expensive it is to transport. You know, an American soldier is so much more expensive, so much more quote-unquote valuable in this way than one of their opponents. And yet America just withdrew from the country after 20 years of warfare. The Soviet Russia was there for 10. The Brits were there trying to make it into a colony as well. The Mongols were there going through all of this. And the fact of the matter is, because they weren't from there, there is no amount of conditioning, no amount of training that can make them as comfortable in those areas as somebody who grew up there. Somebody whose entire life skills have been based around even just being there in general. Not even, not even a matter of military training, but just in terms of being there. Your av average Afghani is harder than your average American. And just will be. And, and that's something, like, you, you can try to bridge that with training. You can take an American who, who might not be hard and make them harder through training and through equipment and through all sorts of other wonderful things. But the fact of the matter is, because their, their opponent, because the Afghani um, soldiers grew up in this hardship, they were already hard from day one. They didn't need an increase in their ability to fight in this way or their, their ability to survive in those conditions. That's where they thrive. And so this, this does matter, whether or not you're from a mountainous area or whether you're from a, a flatter area and where you train. The majority of the U.S. bases where we train our troops, the majority of our, our basic training centers are in flatter areas. A good portion of them in the south, a couple of them in the Midwest. And all these flat areas are a detriment, honestly, in my opinion, to the way that, Montana, or to the, the way that America conducts war in a lot of different areas. Because the, the, the troops themselves are not coming from mountainous areas. Montanans do. But we don't make up the bulk of the army. That's not the and and you know even even people who are from Montana, you're not necessarily getting that guarantee because not all of us grew up out in the woods. I did, like I grew up out in the woods, and you know my friends were the trees, and I was hiking near mountains and brooks and everything since a young age. And so reading the 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 nature of a mountain, like where the lee is going to be, where the falls are going to be, um, kind of intuiting where the best route is through a forest. These things are just natural to me because I grew up out there because because my childhood was spent walking those forests and knowing those things and experiencing the danger of it 
knowing the danger of it on an intrinsic level. And so I'm far better operated and, and you know, Montanans like myself would be far better operating in that particular environment than somebody who wasn't. Now, that being said, when you get to a flat area, I am just immediately uncomfortable. Not, not only at a disadvantage tactically necessarily, but just uncomfortable. Like when I'm in pl some place like Kansas, it, I get like, a, I'm not agoraphobic, but it's pretty darn close. <laughs> just this, this, this massive discomfort about being able to see basically all across the horizon. I've got a friend who's living in uh, Leiden right now, and she sends me pictures of the countryside around there, which is just stunning. I mean, these areas in, in the area, like this, this northern part of Europe, mainland Europe, you know, it's just stunning there. The, the, the canals are gorgeous. The sky is beautiful. The land is flatter than anything I've ever seen in my life. Just ridiculously flat. And so somebody who's from there would be able to estimate those distances, estimate what it, what it f even just feels like to be there better than I could. And so there's, there is value on either side of things. And it, de it does depend on, on kind of where you come from in terms of, you know, the geographical conditions of the country, you know, life in the plains and mountains and education of discipline education or discipline absolutely matter, but for different reasons. But if you're looking for a well-oiled professional army, you're looking at a, a, a society, hopefully, that has a higher education rate and, of course, a greater nature of discipline. In particular, if we're looking at the um, France at the time of Napoleon, you know, they had great discipline. And it was something that had been worked in to the soldiers uh, because of, like the, the you know, pre-revolutionary stuff and the weakness of that army had been you know, gutted and redone by military theorists and... and uh, generals, and then of course Napoleon was the came around, one that came along and just put the icing on the cake when it came to bringing all those factors like um, you know uh, standardized training, standardized weaponry, standardized parts, um, just machines parts that could be replaced, which was you know just uh, <laughs> mind blowing. Standardization of calibers, you know, all these things kind of came together within that discipline, and education matters too. Education matters in terms of comprehension, you know, the quality of officers and the quality of NCOs that one is going to be able to pick up. Too much education can actually be a bad thing because then you get people who are not necessarily suited to a soldier's life because they have um, focused all their things elsewhere, focused all their talents, focused all their skills in another way. But education and discipline are both, both very important. And so if we're coming from an area that does have the same geographical conditions as the one where the war is being fought and they have the education and they have the discipline for it, then of course they're going to have a, a far, far higher character of their troops. It's been a long time talking about that, but I think that there was a lot to unwrap in that particular maxim. 112. All great captains have done great things only by conforming to the rules and natural principles of the art. That is to say, by the wisdom of their combinations, the reasoned balance of means with consequences, and efforts with obstacles. They have succeeded only by thus conforming, whatever may have been the audacity of their enterprises and the extent of their success. They have never ceased to make war a veritable science. It is only under this title that they are, are great models, and it is only in imitating them that one can hope to approach them. We talk a lot about knowing the rules so that you can break them. 
And there's a lot of times that this is the case, but just because we know the rules doesn't mean we get to break all of them. There are many rules of warfare, many rules of, of leading an army, or many rules of ruling a nation that are just sort of set in stone. They don't change. They are intrinsic either to human nature or to the nature of physics or to or some such thing. These are things that we cannot get around. You know, there's been a lot of similarity, for instance, when we've studied terrain and ground and how it needs to affect the way that we organize, transport, um, you know, put into formation our troops, how we can use them, that, that you know, mountains need to be treated differently than plains. That is a solid law. That is a solid rule of all warfare. It doesn't matter how tricksy we are. There are different tactics required for one or the other, different means by which to, to win. And using the tactics of the plains in the mountains, trying to be clever, isn't clever at all. And so a good general, a good commander will abide by that. It doesn't matter how, uh, how you know, good they are at manipulating that terrain. They have to change their tactics. They have to insert themselves into that rule. But the idea here, of course, is to say the wisdom of their combinations. That is one of the perfect lines within this maxim, because that is the true mastery of the quote-unquote art of war, is that experience, that breadth of knowledge that allowed us, allows us to combine a lot of different factors into something that may or may not look unique. You know, these, these maxims that Napoleon talks about, these aren't new. He's not, he's not a savant who is coming up with completely new knowledge. He has a different take on it, different perspective, different approach. But the laws that he's talk about, talking about, the, the concepts, the theories that he's talking about are consistent. These are things that go across. Good logistical supplies. That's not something that one can mess with. You don't mess with logistics. That's, that is just a rule. Trying to go against that is like trying to swim against a river. You just shouldn't do it. And so we're, we're, of course, we're balancing these means and the consequences as well. Like there's a lot of wisdom in this particular one. I like it. But there are rules and natural principles of the art. There are things that are just kind of hard rules, ones that cannot be broken. Maybe they can be bent, you know, like a, a um, unit distribution, like something in there might be able to be bent from other things. You know, we all have different opinions on flanking and whether it should be wider or shorter or faster or longer or you know there's there's different things at play in some of some of people's minds but one of the for instance one of the big ones is do not charge uh fortified infantry uh, un unbroken fortified infantry don't do it it's dumb no cavalry charges into un unbroken infantry and that's just that's just a rule of warfare and that's something that had to be obeyed in Napoleon's time frame as much as it is in today's time frame. If you look at the Gulf War, uh, where America entered into the conflict with Saddam Hussein, the border on Kuwait was heavily reinforced. And the American forces would have had just a hell of a time getting through there. Just a hell of a time if it was simply their ground forces, which was mainly tanks at that particular time. Uh, at least in terms of this the initial assault. But those those... You know, infantry placements, even even against tanks, still had to be broken up. You still had to have artillery fire that came in, bombings that happened, that broke up those opposing ranks. So when the tanks finally did hit, it was devastating. Absolutely devastating. Now, by the way, that is taking a, a, um, a page out of the Blitzkrieg handbook, which, of course, wasn't, wasn't at this time. But I think, again, given the, the aggression of it, that Napoleon probably would have approved 
of Blitzkrieg, except for the use of meth, but we, we won't get into that right now. The mastery of it comes from knowing when to abide by solid, hard and fast rules, and when rules can be bent. But also how to combine the different things, how to combine this set of knowledge and that set of knowledge. Every single commander that we've talked to so far has mentioned education, at least in some bit, making sure that your officers, in particular, are well-read in the greats, you know, in Caesar. And in this day and age, we, we say in Napoleon and in Frederick. Uh, I always recommend Sun Tzu. Everybody recommends Sun Tzu. He's a master of it as well. You know, we, we've got these people who we study on purpose because they figured it out first. Humanity, we have a superpower that I think goes awry a lot. And we're using it right now in part. We have the ability, now for, for you know, centuries at this point, uh, longer, <laughs> um, going all the way back to cuneiform, we've had the ability to pass on our knowledge to those in the future, which is incredible. No other animal could do that. We can say, okay, I learned these things during my lifetime, and I'm going to pass along these, idea, these ideas, pass along this knowledge so that the future generation can benefit from them. We can have conversations, basically, with people who lived centuries, thousands of years ago, and understand what they're saying, and understand what they're still trying to tell us to this day. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible that we can do that as a species. And so as a commander, we have to do that. I think part of the reason that you are here listening to me is that you are heeding this particular word of advice, because it's not just the book. I mean, I'm sitting here reading out of the book, but I'm also recording this onto a medium that you can listen to elsewhere. You know, this is also a very similar idea. And so the idea of making sure that we're educated, making sure that we're approaching it in the most intelligent way that we possibly can, means that we're not going to make the mistakes of the past. Hopefully. It means we're not going to try to invade Russia during the winter, <laughs> which means that we're not going to try to make all these other blunders that we've heard about because we've read about them. And we say, okay, no more. No more. I'm not going to let that happen again. So the idea, again, is knowing what to do, what not to do, and the right combinations to do so. And that comes with a lot of experience and a lot of education. So what you're doing right now, listening to me and reading these books, I'm assuming, uh, on your own time as well, this is great. This is fantastic education, but it's not the complete story. You also need experience. Just because somebody is well-read doesn't mean they're good at fighting or at command. I should know. When I first started fighting, I was already very well read. I had already read many of these books that we've been covering. But I was young, and I didn't have the tools to properly understand what I was, what I was looking at. And I didn't have the wisdom to know that some of these are hard and fast rules. That just because you look at it and you're like, oh, somebody does it this way, I'm going to do it differently. Well, different isn't always better. Or, or innovative, for that matter. Sometimes different is something that somebody already tried, and it was dumb, and there's a reason we don't do it anymore. So, it is a science. It is an art. It is both things. So, we want to look at it as one would look at both. And as a scientist, we build upon that which came before. You don't reinvent the wheel, not unless the wheel itself is inefficient and needs improvement. You know, we build upon what came before us, the knowledge that came before us. And so we have to do the same in warfare too. Otherwise we're, we're foolish or, or hoisted by our own hubris. To think that those rules do not apply to us is to, to, to dig our own grave, really. So I agree with Napoleon 100% here. 
you know, you still have to conform to the rules. We still can't just have imagine people flying over walls unimpeded. Like I will miraculously now grow wings and fly over that wall. No, that is not a natural principle that we can <laughs> conform to. So yeah, I like this one. One thirteen, and here we're about to get into some naval tactics. And so this won't necessarily take very long. I would love to come back to this sort of thing when Games Workshop finally brings back Battlefleet Gothic. Are you listening, Games Workshop? I hope so. Because if you are, you've gotten all of my emails, all of which were nice. I've never mean. You've gotten all of my surveys. You've even gotten a few letters from me when I've uh, been able to order other things. And just about every single one of those things, Games Workshop, I have begged, demanded, pleaded with you to bring back Battlefleet Gothic, because I love naval warfare. I love it, but I also love 40k, and I don't want to invest in a, a different universe. I know that there's, what is it, Star Wars Armada as well, but between you and me, I'm just not as into Star Wars as I am 40k. Star Wars is fine. I grew up on Star Wars. It's fine. But there's just something about the 40k setting, something about the 40k stories that appeal to me more. But downside to that means I don't get to play Space Navy. So this stuff isn't going to be as applicable. We're going to kind of run through it rather quickly to make sure that we do at least cover it. I wanted to make sure we do this whole book. But it's not going to be as applicable to what we do. 113. The first law of naval tactics should be that as soon as the admiral has given the signal that he is going to attack, each captain should make the necessary movements to attack an enemy ship, take part in the combat, and support his neighbors. Now this is kind of the same idea as what we talked about before. We're not wasting anything. We're not like, okay, well, this ship is going to just kind of be back here bobbing in the water and the rest of them are going to go forward and attack. No. Using every ship available, using all the resources available. But the difference in a huge way between naval tactics and uh, land tactics isn't just the, the medium, but it's the way that it's conducted. You have a big thing that is moving. Like There's a lot more... Oh, what would you call it? Pliability. Uh, when it comes to dealing with infantry. They can be stretched out in a line. They can be clumped up into a column. They can be scattered throughout a formation. Like There's a lot of different ways to deploy a squad of infantry. A ship is a ship. It will be shaped the same way, regardless of what you call it, or regardless of what you tell it to be shaped. It will move in the same way. It will fire in the same way. So we have a fixed point that is being commanded by one person. Now, of course... If we're dealing with smaller unit tactics, you know, uh, conceivably, the unit is controlled by a sergeant or a lieutenant or something like that. However, comma, the, the troops don't necessarily have to obey. And morale plays a huge part there. And things can go wrong. And, you know, that unit itself can get broken up and, uh, you know, coherency can get lost. Whereas there's one person making the call. When it comes to a ship, you have your captain. And they're communicating with the other captains, they're communicating with the admiral, but you have one person making that call, and the entire ship responds accordingly. Every time. So you have a lot more individual control in this way. And so, like, an admiral gives the sign to attack, that means that as the captain, as the person who is actually in charge, really in charge, of this unit, what we're calling the ship and everybody within it, a lot more autonomy is given there. Which means that the responsibility to get in there and fight is a lot higher as well. You know, get in there, take part in the combat, and support their neighbors. 114. This is a long one. War on land, in general, 
consumes more men than naval warfare. It is more dangerous. The sailor in a fleet fights but once during a campaign. The ground soldier fights every day. The sailor, whatever may be the fatigues and dangers of the sea, suffers much less than the soldier. He is never hungry nor thirsty. He always has a place to sleep, his kitchen, his hospital, his pharmacy. There are fewer sick in England and French fleets, where discipline maintains cleanliness and experience has discovered all the means of preserving health, than in armies. Besides the peril of battle, the sailor risks those of tempests, but seamanship has so much diminished the latter that it cannot be compared with those on land, such as popular uprisings, partial assassinations, and surprises by hostile light troops. There are, of course, some things here that are silly. You know, the idea that a, a sailor is never hungry or thirsty, of course, that is uh, challenged by logistical issues. But you know, in a lot of ways, he's correct here. You know, a ship is uh, in many ways safer. Uh, now, if something happens catastrophically, it happens to everybody catastrophically, especially if we think about a submarine. You know, yeah, submarines are actually pretty darn safe compared to being an infantry person. However... It doesn't take much for a sub to no longer be tenable and for everybody inside of it to suddenly be having massive issues. Whereas a, like a similar thing, like if you drop a depth charge onto a submarine, that's game over as a general rule. Whereas like if you drop an artillery shell onto an infantry position, you know, if they're all clumped up, that could be game over. But if they're all spread out, perhaps not. Maybe you only got uh, three or four of them. So, of course, there, there are those two different dangers and less fighting. World War II would have been a huge exception to this. The Japanese and American fleets battled constantly. World War I and World War II uh, in Europe as well, if you think about the, the exchanges between the English and the Germans uh, in, the, in like the Baltic Sea and, and Northern Atlantic. You know, that, that was also significant as well. So maybe back during Napoleon's time, this may have been the case, that like pitched naval combat wasn't the thing. But, you know, in, in recent history, it has been for us. And anymore, it might not be that case as much because now we have the aircraft carrier age. You know, the battleship used to be the king of the sea, but toward the, the tail end of World War II, it became apparent that the aircraft carrier was going to become the superior, you know, long-range long kind of attack uh, vector. So a little bit more, a little bit more, but... And so, yeah, there's fewer six because you can have that cleanliness. That obviously depends on the captain, but you can keep things clean. You can have people swabbing the decks and making sure that the food hasn't gone bad and having the, like the, the flexibility to you know, do a, a lot more in those ways and have it be consistent rather than the you know, marching man who, sure, you might um, camp in a, in a town one time. You go in, you occupy it, and you get your nice little room, maybe uh, you know, commandeer a pillow and a bed. And you get to sleep right nice and plain. And uh, in the next scene, suddenly you're in a trench. And you're having to deal with trench foot. Which, there's only so much you can do about that. You know, you can keep a ship pretty clean. And while scurvy is a, is a hazard, that's a hazard that comes with a lack of, of the food. But trench foot, and that can be solved. But trench foot, uh, that just sort of happens. Like That's just a matter of like, okay, I'm trying to practice the best hygiene I can to avoid it. But in overall exposure it's still very much there you, know, you can't you can't pull water out of a trench after a certain point it, it just gets muddy it just gets mucky it just gets bad and so yeah in, in a lot of ways sailors have it much better um it's it, it, part of the reason that the army teases them as a as a veteran myself we do tease the 
the uh, the sailors just a little bit. But that's not to say that they still don't experience quite a bit of peril when in pitched combat. Now, this last one, and I'm not kidding you, like there, this is two pages for one maxim. So we're going to get through this together. Uh, yeah, we'll get through this together. 115, the final of the maxims. We have made it, ladies and gentlemen. An admiral commanding a fleet and a general commanding an army are men who need different qualities. One is born with the qualities proper to command an army, while the necessary qualities to command a fleet are acquired only by experience. The art of war on land is an art of genius, of inspiration. On the sea, everything is definite and a matter of experience. The admiral needs only one science, navigation. The general needs all, or a talent equal to all, that is, that of profiting of all experience and all knowledge. An admiral needs to divine nothing. He knows where his enemy is and knows his strength. A general never knows anything with certainty, never sees his enemy clearly, and never knows positively where he is. When armies meet, the least accident of the terrain, the smallest wood, hides a portion of the army. The most experienced eye cannot state whether he sees the entire army or only three-quarters of it. It is by the eyes of the mind, by reasoning over the whole, by a species of inspiration, and that the general sees, knows, and judges. The admiral needs only an experienced glance. Nothing of the enemy force is hidden from him. What makes the general's function difficult is the necessity of nourishing so many men and animals. If he permits himself to be guided by administrators, he will never budge and his ex expeditions will fail. The admiral is never bothered since he carries everything with him. An admiral neither re has reconnaissances to make, terrain to examine, nor fields of battle to study. Indian Ocean, American Ocean, or North Sea, it is always a liquid plain. The most skillful will have no advantage over the least, except for his knowledge of prevailing winds and such coastal waters, by foresight of those which pre uh, should prevail, or by atmospheric signs, qualities which are acquired by experience and experience only. The general never knows the field of battle on which he may operate. His understanding is, of, is that of inspiration. He has no positive information. Data to reach a knowledge of localities are so contingent on events that almost nothing is learned by experience. It is a faculty to understand immediately the relations of the terrain according to the nature of different countries. It is, finally, a gift called the coup del militaire, which we've talked about before with Frederick, uh, which is you know, the ability to take in a military situation at a glance, which great generals have received from nature. However, the observations that can be made from topographic maps and the facility which education and habit give in reading maps can be of some assistance. An admirable depends more on the captains of his ships than a general on his generals. The latter has to, the opportunity to take direct command of the troops himself, to move at any, to, to any point and repair false movements. An admiral can only influence personally the men on the vessel on which they find themselves. Smoke prevents signals from being seen, the winds can change or vary over the space occupied in the line. It is thus of all professions that in which subalterns should use the largest initiative. Ah, yes. As in like people who are not the admiral uh, actually showing initiative and going and doing things. It is obvious when reading this that although Napoleon does grasp quite a bit about the difference, that he is a general and has not the experience of commanding on the ocean, because some of this, some of this isn't right. There is a lot to say about somebody needing certain qualities to lead in a navy, 
and they being intrinsic qualities that cannot just be acquired by experience. And you know, those are the same qualities required in a lot of different leadership positions. You need somebody who is clearly understood, somebody who has a clean tactical mind, somebody who is not easily disturbed by defeat or by surprises or anything along those lines. And this also takes into account not the, the realities of warfare as we have it now. They didn't have submarines back when Napoleon was writing this. And so when he's talking about knowing exactly where your opponent is and being able to judge them because of where they're at, we're talking about a, a style of combat that is very limited. You know, they're, they're not shooting long distances with these cannons. Not really. Uh, and not accurately. You know, so the, the engagements that happen are going to happen in a far more finite space and a far more reasonable area during this time. Now, when we start including the ideas of aircraft carriers, which can strike from beyond the horizon, or submarines that can strike from below the horizon, suddenly this isn't the same. Suddenly this, the, this analysis can really be thrown out the window. Honestly, of all the stuff that we've read of Napoleon's, this is the most irrelevant because the way that we fight warfare in terms of Navy these days is so much more different than it was in the time of Napoleon. The laws are completely different. The means for command are completely different. For instance, when he talks about how, um, how dangerous it is communication-wise for like the smoke signals and everything, we don't have to worry about smoke signals anymore. We're not using flags to communicate. We've had, we have radios. And so the ability of an admiral to retain good control over their forces is far more pronounced than it would have been in Napoleon's day. You know, and that Coudel, the Coudel is more of a, is more of an army thing as well. Like that is so, like you kind of that's required. And it might be something that can be trained ish. But if you don't have the temperament and the observation to be able to just have Coudel, it um that's hard. So on that one I agree with him. That's something because I've tried to train people on that one and it's it can be difficult to have somebody who can take in the whole picture. And uh, you know, some, and some people, it's just a matter of unlocking that talent. Like I would say that Toto, when he first started, didn't have Kudel in either Belagarth or 40K, but because of his determined application uh, to learning the, the benefits of those things, he developed it in both cases. He's one of those people that can take a look at a board, take a look at a field, and come up with a very solid strategy of winning. Just based on his observation of it. It's very impressive. <laughs> Always enjoy watching him do it. So yeah, he's, he's right there. But in terms of the certainty which naval captains or naval admirals would operate as opposed to a general, no, that's just, that's just not the way of modern warfare. So um, yeah, so I, I think that that's a, a good place for us to stop. I'm, we made it. Guys, we made it. I know I went a little over on this one, but I figured that we should... I didn't want to sp spend an entire episode on that last maxim. That would have seemed silly. All right, we're going to spend an entire um, episode talking about how Napoleon's wrong about naval warfare. <laughs> no, we don't need, we need five minutes for that. We don't need a whole thing for that. But So next time we talk, though, we're going to be getting back to some Klausfits. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. 
Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.